Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. There might not be a contest this year, but that doesn't stop us celebrating some Eurovision history with Eurovision royalty. It's 50 years this year since a 17-year-old girl from Derry won the contest for Ireland. Her name was Dana, and she stormed to victory with all kinds of everything in 1970, sparking a short break in the Troubles and a welcome yet brief return to peace on both sides of the border. MIM's Ashley Byrne has been catching up with Dana for this edition of Distinct Nostalgia. Let those memories come flooding back. Wishing wells, wedding bells, early morning dew. All kinds of everything remind me of you. Well, lovely to talk to you as always, Dana. And um, it's amazing, isn't it, to think that uh, we're talking to you in a very special year, really, because it's half a century since you won the Eurovision Song Contest. How does that make you feel? Well, first of all, it's lovely to talk to you again, Ashley. We can't keep meeting like this, you know, every few years. But it is a very special year for me. I can hardly believe that it's 50 years since I won Eurovision for Ireland. But, you know, it's um, it's amazing how vivid it all is to me still. I remember all the details. Now, of course, we're all in lockdown at the moment. We're in lockdown here in the UK. And um, you've been traveling around promoting the Eurovision and you found yourself in lockdown on the other side of the world. Tell us where you are, Dana. I am sitting in Australia, literally on the other side of the world. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a date when we'll be able to fly back. There's no international flights. Uh, there's some repatriation flights, but the difficulty being when you reach your home country, it's still in lockdown there. So it's not a good time to travel. Now, of course, it's a very difficult time for everybody, for anybody, all of us who are isolating in different ways. But it's particularly difficult, isn't it, for people who are isolating on their own at the moment. Have you any particular messages for people who might be on their own listening to this? Well, my heart goes out to anybody that's feeling really lonely at the minute. And our son actually has been completely isolated for the last almost nine weeks. And I mean, thank God for the telephone. And if you're able to Skype with people and and thank God for radio and, and online programs. But, you know, obviously... Even when you're in a house full of people, you can feel lonely sometimes. But just to know you're not alone, and there's a lot of people throughout the world are really thinking about and praying for people that, that are just feeling a little bit desperate at the minute, and especially anyone who has a member of their family or their circle of friends that has this dreadful virus. 
um, sometimes all you can do is, you know, just, just pray for people and just let them know somehow that you're thinking of them and that you love them. Well, let's try and uh, bring a bit of light to the proceedings. I know we're in a pretty dark time at the moment, but it is 50 years ago this year since you uh, won the Eurovision Song Contest for Ireland. And uh, we'll talk in a moment about how it brought some peace to uh, Ireland at a time of troubles, of course. But I was just looking at uh, the RTE archives online a short time ago and I noticed that in 1978, I think it was, uh, when you got married, there were thousands of people on the streets, uh, thousands of people outside the church for your wedding. And you even had to uh, do a rendition of all kinds of everything when you when you came out after the service, didn't you? <laughs> do you remember that? Do you know, Ashley, that was the most wonderful day. We did not expect literally thousands of people to turn out for our wedding but they closed the schools and they closed a lot of the shirt factories and when we arrived at the church I couldn't get out of the car because people were jammed up against the car and when we finally made our way into into the uh, cathedral um, where you know I'd been at school from primary school in the little school opposite. So I knew this cathedral very well and it was jam-packed. And, and I was told later that somebody saw a nun on top of a confession box <laughs> to get a view of the altar. But it was a wonderful, happy day, a celebration. And when we came out of the... Um, Church, we went for our photographs and then we went to the hotel. That's the snippet you saw because they were all lined up outside the gates of the hotel. And Damien and I walked over to say hello to this group. And they began singing all kinds of everything for us. And it was a, a really happy day. Okay, then. So let's tell the story, shall we? Let's go back uh, uh, over 50 years ago and uh, tell us... Um, uh, what you were doing before Eurovision and uh, how you ended up going for Eurovision in the first place? Well, first of all, I was born into a very musical family and in a very musical city. Uh, Phil Coulter, who wrote the first winning song for the UK, uh, Puppet on a String, co-wrote it. He's from my hometown. And there's so many musicians who have come out of Derry. So our house was always full of musicians. And I studied piano and violin and I played guitar and I sang. But my main instrument was the piano. So my life was a round of um, music lessons and I did ballet and I go to dance class. And I take part in what we call the fache which was competitions from I was six years old, um, right up until Eurovision. I'd be playing piano or I'd be singing or I'd be dancing. So my whole life was a round of, of music. So I began singing in folk clubs because I won a talent competition in the folk section. And because of that, I got a recording contract and I was writing songs for a tiny little company in Dublin called Rex Records. 
They were actually distributors for Decca, Decca Records. And the secretary put me in for auditions for the National Song Contest, where they picked the Eurovision, you know, the Eurovision entry. So in 1969, I sang in the National Song Contest and I came second. And that was around about March time of 69. Well, by the summer, I really felt I didn't want to be a singer because I used to get so nervous going on stage. And, you know, I just thought, well, I, I don't want this for my life. I settled down. I was doing my A-levels and I wanted to be a teacher of music and English literature. So I retired. I retired from show business in the summer of 1969. At the age of 17? Well, A-levels are pretty serious things. So it was December when the producer of the National Song Contest, a man called Tom McGrath, called me. And he said, you know, I have a little song for next year's National Song Contest. I think it would suit you. Would you like to sing it? Well, that song was all kinds of everything. Seagulls and aeroplanes, things of the sky. Winds that go howling, breezes that sigh. City sights, neon lights, grey skies or blue. Song contest, and that's how I entered Eurovision. And what had Ireland's history been at Eurovision up to that point? Well, we'd had some really good entries, some very good artists. We came second one year, but we were always kind of the bridesmaid, never the bride. And nobody expected us to win, at least of all me, when I went to 1970. 
And it was such a shock. In fact, Decca didn't even have the masters of, of my recording. So it went out on Rex Records. And you know something, Ashley, that was the first time that a distribution and a tiny distribution company outsold the mother company, Decca, because they didn't even have the masters. So it was a huge shock to everybody. So how did you actually prepare for the Eurovision Song Contest? I mean, you knew that the Song Contest existed. It had been around for quite a long time. Um, obviously, it's not as it wasn't as complicated as or complex as as it is now, I suppose. Um, but how did you prepare? How did you um, how did you get ready for such a huge event, as it were? Well, um, the first thing was actually in the National Song Contest how to present the song. And the words suggested that. Snowdrops, daffodils, butterflies, bees. So I thought, well, where would you be looking at that? And I thought, well, probably I'd be sitting on a gate somewhere having walked up a country road, of which there were plenty round where I lived. So that's why I sat. I sat on the stool. And it's almost like a little folk song. You know, so it suited me very well. And when I won the National Song Contest, then Phil Coulter was there that night at the National Song Contest. He felt it needed a new arrangement. So he had an arrangement done, or he did the arrangement. And I flew to London to record a new version of the song, or the version of the song in a studio in Bond Street. I think it was Chapel Recording Studio in Bond Street. So I had done some recording prior to that, but but in smaller studios in Dublin. So there I was in Bond Street in London with these huge orchestra, big orchestra. And actually, there's an interesting instrument in the intro it goes da 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 and it goes da 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 and that's a jawbone. But it was a jaw a real jawbone that they used for that sound. So when you hear it again, you'll be able to listen for that, Ashley. I was fascinated by all the you know, the rehearsals and the recording and I'm I'm always very comfortable with musicians. I loved it. I think I did just one or two takes on the main vocal. And the next minute I'm in Bond Street trying to hail a taxi with Phil Coulter. And finally he had to drive me to the airport at top speed in his car. So the next step was what to wear. And I wanted to wear something that was um, like a typically Irish look, but contemporary. So the style then was the kind of the... Uh, the mini dress, the A-line. Um, I can see you're glazing over here, Ashley. This is not at all your area that you're interested in. <laughs> but I wanted a very traditional Irish, so it was a banyan material, a beautiful woven wool, fine wool cream. But the design on it was just like Irish dancing costumes had. All the kind of Book of Kell designs, the uh, wonderful intricate embroidery but we put rhinestones in it. So it was very typically Irish, but very contemporary. 
And then the next thing, of course, was going to to Holland. Now, Eurovision, we know, is quite a different event to what it was then. It's gone through lots of different incarnations, but it's always been a huge event. You know, in 1970, it was a massive event. It was seen all around the world. It might have been focused on Europe, but it was a massive, massive event uh, with millions and millions of people um, watching the event every year, watching the contest every year. Um, How do you prepare for something like that? I mean, you know, we all get nervous. The best of us get nervous. Um, How was that for you? Well, when we arrived in Amsterdam, um, we stayed in a hotel, the Esselmoto Hotel, actually, and all the artists were in the same hotel and their entourage. Now, I had a pretty small entourage. I had my mum and my granny and I had my manager at the time and his wife and the Irish journalists and the Irish team. We were quite quite small. But there were some very big groups. The Spanish group was very big and their singer was Julio Iglesias. So he was a big star in Spain. And we used to laugh because we said, if you stand still for two seconds, one of their team will put a sticker on you saying, vote for Spain. These stickers everywhere, vote for Spain. And my big moment was to see Mary Hopkins because she was the UK entry. And I was a huge fan of Mary Hopkins. And, you know, it's it's funny when when you really, really love somebody and then you have a chance to meet them, it's very dicey because if they're not as nice as you believe they are, oh, it can be devastating. And she was even nicer than I thought she would be. She was just lovely. And her mother and my mother, just feet in the ground, little working class women, they hit it off. So they formed friendship and I formed friendship with Mary. And she was just lovely. And I got to know all the other artists. But for me, I wasn't petrified. Of course, I was nervous. But I wasn't petrified because I didn't think I had a chance and I didn't want to be a singer and I was going to do my A-levels and I was going to go to university or college and so all I wanted to do was do my best and remember every second of it. So I we met, they had various receptions that we all attended and at one of them a gentleman came up and sat beside me I didn't know who he was. And he said, do you know, I think you have a good chance of winning this. Well, I couldn't take a compliment. You know, you, like, I couldn't take a compliment. So my immediate response was, I bet you say that to all the girls. And the look of shock on his face, he just looked at me. And and I got up and left. That was Bill Cotton, who was the head of the BBC and went on to be, I think, the chairman of the BBC. That was Bill Cotton. And I thought about it afterwards. He must have thought I was the cheekiest brat. But I was just embarrassed. I couldn't I couldn't take his compliment. But many years later, when I was doing a show with Shirley Bassey in the BBC, he was in the in the green room, and uh, he said to me, 
do you remember the first time I met you, what you said to me? <laughs> and we both laughed. So there were kind of moments like that, you know, when you'd meet people, you hadn't a clue who they were. I mean, they could have been like the king, but I had no idea who anybody was. Distinct comedy, fresh and original. Hello, officer, I want to report a robbery. A new series about the secret world of nocturnal security. Yeah, I ordered a Chinese from the Golden Moon and they forgot to send me a can of Coke. A distinct comedy presentation. Well, yeah, I consider it an emergency. I'm gasping here. That idiot on the day shift stolen the last of my flicking tea bags. Barry Pigeon protects. Well, I'm telling you, if you lot don't sort this out, it's going to be like big trouble in little China down here. Follow the exploits of Barry Pigeon, the best night security guard in Chorley, as he discusses everything from his wife... She was too big for Zumba, so she signed up for Bumba. It's like Zumba, only they just sit on their ass and flap their arms around a bit. ...to his favourite food. I love eggs, bloody love them. Poached, scrambled, fried, <laughs> scotched, cream. I love them all! From Andrew Birtwell and Kurt Brooks, starring Roe David McClelland, and guest-starring Royston Mayo and Bruce Jackson. Columbo meets Sherlock, that's me. Barry Pigeon protects. I know what people think about this job, but it's not all sitting on your ass, drinking brews and watching Challenge TV. Uh, I sometimes bring a book as well. Watch now at distinctnostalgia.com. Dear Miss Jones, may I call you Clementina? Firstly, may I say how nice it was to meet you in the park yesterday. Distinct Comedy presents Letters from one Border Terrier pup to another. Apparently, socks that cannot accommodate toes because they have large holes where said toes should be fail to fulfil any real purpose. Based on true events seen through canine eyes. I now know that I'm definitely afraid of both heights and, not surprisingly, of big ladies. Dear Clementina, new episodes every Thursday. Available to listen now at distinctnostalgia.com. Sincerely yours, Stanley Burke. Woof! It's interesting that you should mention Mary Hopkin because, of course, uh, she'd become quite a big star in the UK uh, because of her song Those Were the Days. And I guess um, the UK decided to put her up for the Eurovision Song Contest because they thought she stood a real chance of uh, of winning. Now, she didn't win. Of course, you won. Uh, but she did come second with a, quite a, a decent song, which did quite well, didn't it? Well, her song was Knock Knock Who's There, um, yeah. a great pop song. And actually, one of the writers, Jeff Stevens, wrote a lot of songs for me. I ended up working with Jeff a lot. But I have a lot of respect for Mary Hopkin. I think she is a beautiful singer and as well as being a beautiful person. So to stand beside Mary, you know, by the time it got to the Saturday night when the contest was held in the theatre, I had not seen anybody else sing and I had not heard any other song. The reason being I knew I would be totally intimidated by the other artists, because I I was an amateur. I mean, I was still at school. And they were all professional artists. So I just knew that I would be so intimidated and I, nerve, very nervous if I watched anybody else. So the first time I heard the songs really was on the night of the contest. Even in the dress run, 
I, I wouldn't watch anybody. So the night of the contest, it was held in a, uh, a theatre, as they all were at that time. And we were all in a room at the back of the stage around a rectangular table with a television on the wall. And as each person's turn came to go and sing, there was a great camaraderie. We'd all say, oh, good luck and do well. And as the person would come back, they'd get a round of applause. So I was just watching everybody. And when it came to the point, I was the last to sing. I wasn't watching the voting. I was watching Mary Hawkins and Julio Iglesias and the girls who sang for Holland. And I mean, I, I, I wasn't interested in the voting because it didn't matter to me. I'd got through it. I hadn't fallen off the stool. I hadn't forgotten my words. I mean, I, I was delighted. It was like a huge weight off my shoulders. But then a very big vote came in for Ireland. But when it came in, they were moving us from the rim backstage to the side of the stage. So we all missed that vote. And then we gathered round another television and and Mary was beside me. She had her arm around me. And I just remember thinking to myself, I'm going to lock this in my memory because I will never do this again. I'll never stand with all these beautiful people again, ever. Next second, the uh, stage manager grabbed me by the arm and started to pull me to the side of the stage saying, you've won, come with me. And of course, I was leaning against him with all my might saying, no, I haven't, there's another vote. But I hadn't realised that I would have been the winner no matter what the vote was. And then Mary very gently said, you have won, go with them. So I, in a total daze, I walked with him to the side of the stage I was in deep shock and I stayed in deep shock for about six months. <laughs> so just take us back to the moment that you actually had to get up on stage and perform. I mean, I can't imagine what it'd be like for me. I mean, I can't sing anyway. So, but, <laughs> but what was it like um, getting up there and uh, suddenly realizing there's all these millions of people? Uh, watching you, not just uh, in the uh, in the contest arena, but all around the world. Uh, no, it didn't go through my mind that there were millions watching because you couldn't conceive of millions watching. I mean, I, I, probably the biggest crowd I'd ever sung to was maybe a couple of hundred people. I mean, folk clubs are not big. So uh, no, I never even thought about a million people. And as we were in that room, I was hearing and seeing the songs for the first time because I hadn't gone to any rehearsals. So I'm thinking, oh, that's a great song. <laughs> oh, that's a great song. Oh, that's a great performance. You know, I, I was assuming actually that Mary would win because she was the favourite and it was a super song. So when I had my turn, the last to go out, I just remember being very kind of cross with myself and standing on the side of the stage because I used to get to the middle of a song. I'd start with great gusto and then I'd get to the middle of a song and I'd suddenly realise where I was <laughs> and I'd start to lose my breath control. I'd break out in a sweat, I'd forget the words, you know. So I, 
I just remember saying to myself, don't screw this up. Don't mess it up. And the only people I saw in my mind was my father and my brothers watching in the flat where we lived and my great-aunt Mary, who'd take me all my ballet classes and all my friends. They were the faces I saw and I just didn't want to let them down. So that was my thought before I walked on. Now, it was an amazing win for you as an individual who was, you know, uh, 17 years of age. Fantastic win. Uh, But that moment, in a way, was dwarfed by what came next and the reaction, wasn't it? I mean, here we were, uh, Ireland uh, in the middle of the Troubles, um, and uh, it had a huge impact, didn't it, on the people of Ireland at that particular time. Um, This was a massive event, wasn't it? Oh, my goodness. When I walked back on the stage to receive the award and sat on the stool and began singing again, it literally looked like half of the entire auditorium were moving towards the stage. They literally looked like they were walking to the stage. And flashbulbs, photographers, see, nobody had interviewed me. None of the uh, journalists from the other countries had interviewed me because nobody thought Ireland would win. And then I was surrounded by cameras and flashbulbs and every time I closed my eyes, I could see a flash. So it was a, a huge impact, A, because I came from Northern Ireland, which was on world headlines at that time for all the wrong reasons. And also, I was an amateur. I was an unknown singer, even in Ireland. And I was still at school. So the combination of everything, I think, just caught the imagination. Now, you were besieged uh, on your return home, of course, um, both North and and South. Um, And uh, your win sort of uh, brought uh, the two sides of the Irish Troubles and the community together again, didn't it? It sort of brought peace to Northern Ireland for a period of time because uh, they could all identify with you and your win. You were representing Ireland, whether it was North, South, uh, Republican, uh, Unionist, Catholic or Protestant. Um, They all united around Dana, didn't they? It really was a light in a very dark time. And... It was a celebration in the North and with both communities because, of course, I'd grown up singing and playing in in all the music festivals and we were not a divided community in that way because we all did music and we all did dancing and we all competed against each other from we were like six years old and we all knew each other. And music is a great unifier. So... Yes, both sides of the community were united and north and south of the border were united. So it was truly, um, it was like a breath of fresh air in the middle of great difficulty. And do you remember stepping off the plane in Northern Ireland? Do you remember that moment? Oh, yes. Well, first we landed in Dublin. And (laughs) when I flew from Dublin to Amsterdam for Eurovision... Uh, my mum and my granny and myself went in to the ladies before we 
boarded the plane and there was two cleaning ladies in there and they said, oh, you're going off to Eurovision. And they came out with us and there was a porter who had our suitcases. So we were waved off and wished good luck by a porter and two cleaning ladies. And when we came back and they opened the door of the plane, there was about 5,000 people hanging off every floor of this building and on the tarmac. It was it was unbelievable. And and I stepped out and, I mean, I, I could hardly even speak. It was just amazing. And that was into Dublin and, and then eventually you went into Northern Ireland and you got a similar response again, I presume. Yes, uh, we flew the first commercial flight ever to fly from the Republic into the north, uh, into Ballykelly, which was um, an RAF, an, an old RAF airport. So... um Again, it wasn't like massive crowds of people, but it was it was all people that I knew. You know, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my friends. And that was just as special to me. My dad, my brothers. Yeah, it was great. Now, obviously, doing a lot of interviews around um, nostalgia, often looking back and trying to work out what big moments in people's history um, did for them and often the big question is did it change your life well in this instance I think we categorically can say it did change your life didn't it it completely changed my life definitely and I I, I know that obviously everybody's life has ups and downs you know everybody's life has challenges but I know how very very lucky I was um, and I always think of Tom McGrath, who was the man who remembered me from the previous National Song Contest. And I always remember the songwriters, Derry Lindsay and Jackie Smith, because we often forget that it's a song contest. And I know it's a combination of the song and the singer. I know that. But I never want to forget the writers. They were also amateurs like me. They were compositors in a newspaper. So they were not big fancy writers. They were amateurs. So there we were up on that stage in, in uh, Amsterdam. Um, and we I, I know we were all in shock. We were all in shock because Derry Lindsay, he told me that as they flew out to go to Amsterdam, all they wanted was not to come last. Well, that's often the case, isn't it? You basically um, want to really do your best. You don't always expect to win, but uh, if you could put in a good performance, that's the most important thing. Now, after that win, after all of that attention that you got, your life changed, of course, because you were suddenly thrust into being in the public eye um, permanently. How was that for you at such a young age? I can't say it was easy adjusting to suddenly being literally an overnight star. I mean, I was a musician, as I say, piano was my instrument, not my voice. And although I'd been on stage a lot in music festivals and whatever, um, it was a big adjustment to suddenly find you're walking into the top of the pop studio. Something I'd watched every Thursday night. I mean, my town, the streets were empty. It was like this coronavirus all over again. The streets were empty because everybody was watching Top of the Pops. And suddenly, 
I'm walking into the top of the pop studio. And I took part in the first transatlantic televised link-up award show in the talk of the town. And I'm there with all these huge stars. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, (laughs) what am I doing here? You know, and the best newcomer that year was David Bowie. He he looked a scraggy, scraggy blonde hair and, and kind of faded denims. And I remember looking at him and thinking, I wonder how he'll do. <laughs> he did very well. But I mean, I was in situations and places that were just beyond reality to me. Uh, and my first cabaret was in Batley Variety Club, which was one of the top cabaret clubs in the whole country. I went in the week after Louis Armstrong and I believe the week before Shirley Bassey. And there was me with my guitar. The, the, the thing that really helped me was my father was a very fine musician. He was a very fine trumpet player and he travelled with me. So wherever we went, he was in tune with the musicians that I was working with. And he had a lovely nature about him, with a great sense of humour. So he got on well with the musicians and he kind of eased it for me, you know. So I was very grateful for that. Now, you're still going strong after all these years and uh, it's not so long ago that you released a new album, didn't you? Tell us about that. I, I did in 2018, uh, my nieces and nephew are in a band called The Rua, R-U-A, and they've had really phenomenal success in America on the Billboard charts. But the company they were recording with, um, their producer asked in 2018, would I like to go, actually 2017, would I like to go in the studio and record? And I said, no, I wouldn't. Because I, I hadn't been singing and I hadn't been recording for a while. And I, I think you lose your confidence, you know. So I, I said no. And he asked me for about a year, he asked me, if I would come in the studio and record. And then he came up with three beautiful songs and we decided we'd go in the studio and do three. And we recorded in an iconic studio. It's called Music Forum in Rome. And that's where Ennio Maracone did all his recordings. And anyone who's anybody has recorded there. So it's beautiful atmosphere. It's still got RCA on the doors. Wonderful ambience, wonderful sound. And I was quite petrified walking in because I was working with great musicians. Uh, there was, and they'd all, there were stars in their own right. I mean, Manny on drums, he'd, he was with Tears for Fear and uh, Nigel on bass. Uh, he was with Blondie. He wrote their song, you know, one way or another, gonna get you. Great musicians, fantastic guitarist. He, he's the new Jimi Hendrix experience. Fantastic keyboard player. He's, had hits in his own right as a right singer-songwriter. And I just I just felt, oh my gosh, what have I done? But they were wonderful. And once we settled down, we were just musicians, you know, in a room. 
And nobody cares who you've worked with or where you've been or what hits you've had. You're focused on the music. And they were so supportive, Ashley. I I just loved, it was very healing that time with them. So we did the three tracks and the uh, record company loved them. And then we went back in a few months later and finished the album. It's called My Time, which is one of the songs on it. And I honestly think it's one of the most important things I've done. great that you're still performing all these uh, years later now um just solve something for me it's just coming back to me this um i of course remember the eurovision as a, a little boy but i also remember if i'm right in saying you presenting some kind of musical program on a sunday morning which i think was shown in the uk um Am I right, or I'm just dreaming that? This was would be in the late late seventies, early eighties, I think. You've got to sing this. Wake up Sunday, wake up to Sunday morning. Wake up Sunday, gotta get going, gotta get showing love. I hope you were singing then, Ashley. Absolutely, yes. Um, but all I can remember basically is is you sat on a chair. Um, Telling stories and singing songs, was that the main basis of it? Yeah, and my two brothers were in it, and we had a live band. And my musical director at the time, Peter Moss, he was six foot five, and his hair was at least a foot higher, because he had really <laughs> frizzy hair. And we had a different school each year, each week, in the studio. And then we would go out to a school and visit another school and they did all the drawings and we did um, all the readings, we did Bible readings and they sang and, you know, it was one of the happiest things I've ever done. So that must have gone out in Ireland but also across the whole of the UK as well because I remember seeing it on the BBC. It was BBC Manchester that did it. So it was Network BBC. So it went out in Northern Ireland but not, not in the Republic but we did, I think it was either three, three series or four series. But it was the it was the number one children's series that went out. And because I think we all loved it so much. I mean, we just had a ball. 
And it was a real happy programme, you know. Well, that's my earliest memory of you, Dana. I must have been about five when I was watching that. Did you think that I could see you through the television? Oh, I always thought that. I always thought that with uh, lots of things on TV, particularly um, animation things. I always thought that, you know, Paddington Bear or uh, Chorlton from Chorlton and the Wheelies was real. You know, I could put my hand in the TV and, and pull them out, as it were. We had a little character, drawn character called Wizzy in that particular programme. And it was Willie Rushton who wrote that, that whole thing, the great Willie Rushton, Blood Brothers. So he did that. So we had some lovely things in it. Well, Ireland in the 1970s, Northern Ireland in the 1970s, was full of uh, uh, the troubles. In the rest of the UK, of course, we had power cuts and things and strikes and everything. So uh, often we didn't go to school a lot of the time. So we had plenty of time as kids of the 70s to to watch all this uh, all, all this, uh, all this television. Now, back to the Eurovision and your win in 1970 started a bit of a trend for Ireland, didn't it? Because uh, um, only a few years later, um, Johnny Logan won. Well, I think it it made people not assume that we weren't going to win, if you know what I mean. And then Johnny won 10 years after I won. And I'm so proud of Johnny I've known Johnny since he was a little boy and I was not much older than him, but three or four years older, because his dad was a very famous Irish tenor called Patrick O'Hagan. And he's from Derry. So we all knew Patrick O'Hagan. And I met Johnny when I was singing in his father's, um, he had a little bar, a, a pub, with a little live live act thing. So I, I was singing there and I met Johnny and, oh my goodness, he he's a great musician and a great artist. So he has won himself twice, once with his own song, and then he wrote a song for Linda Martin, who's also a very good friend of mine. And he came second with a song with Linda Martin, previous to her winning. I'm really proud of him. And I think all the entries that won for Ireland, none of them were what you'd call a Eurovision song, written for Eurovision. They all had an individuality about them. We're 50 years on from your win, and Eurovision is still going strong, of course, and uh, it's um, different now. It's a a big event, a bit of a monster in many ways. It's uh, huge, even Australia, uh, where you are now. Even Australia competes in... uh, in in Eurovision. Um, what do you make of it? What do you make of the changes? What do you feel about Eurovision today? Well, Eurovision, I would never knock Eurovision because it's so unique. And for unknown singers and unknown writers, and they're still out there, where else can they have a platform like this? Where else? And we've so little light entertainment now. It's almost impossible for unknown people to get a break. I mean, apart from your X Factors and um, Britain's Got Talent, this is on a world scale we're talking about here. So, yeah, I miss the fact that it's not as intimate as, as it was. There's always... In a theatre setting, it fits a television screen. That's why Morecambe and Wise, I remember Eric Morecambe 
telling me that they always worked the majority of their television act in front of a curtain. Even though they were in a studio, they worked in front of a a curtain because that way the viewer felt they were looking at a stage. They were looking, they were sitting in a theatre. And when I saw the transition to the stadium, we had been living out of the country for a while. And when we came back, it was the stadium with 20,000 people. It's so hard to fit a stadium production into a little television screen. In fact, it's impossible. So you've got this struggle between making a spectacle that fits a stadium and making something that fits the intimacy of a television and one person sitting at home. And of course, one of the things that has changed about it is the voting, because of course, in your day, um, it was just judges from different countries who would vote um, at Eurovision. Uh, and then they brought public voting in, of course. So even that side of it has changed, hasn't it? It has changed a lot. And I did not like it when it was the majority public voting, because then smaller countries had no hope because they didn't have the population. And it's a better balance when you've got juries and public. So what restored my faith in this glimpse of what Eurovision's about was when Italy won just a few years ago. Here comes this guy. His suit doesn't fit. His hair's a mess. It has the longest intro, musical intro, of any Eurovision in the history of the country, of of the competition. And, you know, we're always told, get straight to the hook. Never mind about the intro. Get straight into the song because you've only got three minutes. I don't know if people listening realise that there is a three-minute limit on a Eurovision song. And he has this big, long musical intro. And then he, he... when he starts to sing, he's motioning like the violins when they're playing and he's whatever the flute, he's doing it. Oh, but my gosh, what a beautiful song. And he swept the boards. He won all the national votes and he won all the jury votes, the public votes. And I thought, yes, this is what Eurovision's about. Not thinking that because you write what you think is a Eurovision song and you get a very polished presentation and you've got, you know, balloons going off and fireworks going off. and No, at its heart, it is a song competition that must be presented properly by the artist that connects with the viewer. And he did. And I think the quality of Eurovision has improved. I think overall the songs have improved. And I think the presentation is more sensitive to the fact that some of the, you know, the big screens behind, some of them are very distracting, but some of them are exquisitely beautiful. So it's it's adapting. Um, you know, it's so unique. And, and truly, music's the one thing that can unite us worldwide. It's a unifier. So I would never knock 
Eurovision. And I think what you're doing in trying to link everybody up through through music and through the memories of Eurovision is so great. So thank you all there for doing this. I know it's a huge effort for you. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you very much indeed for talking to us, uh, Dana, for Distinct Nostalgia. One of the um, interesting things that's come out of lockdown, actually, is the amount of people who were creating in isolation, who were actually doing creative things, you know, musicians and actors and uh, writers and everybody who seem to have sort of um, uh, been given an extra bit of vigour to uh, to create things. I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And going through your emails... And going through your address book and thinking, do you know, I really need to contact that person again. And linking up and keeping in touch and talking. I mean, I know a lot of good will come out of this very difficult time. But, oh, my heart does go out to people who are really suffering at this time. But, you know, I think it's made us all stop and think how precious time is. And how important it is to let people know that you actually care about them. Well, Dana, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a great pleasure, Ashley. I hope you manage to get home soon. Roman candles that burn in the night, yeah, you are a shining light. You lit a torch in the empty night, yeah, you are a shining Nostalgia is produced by MIM. And you can hear lots more programmes via the Distinct Nostalgia player. There's Hartley Hare and a Pipkins reunion. So, Hartley, nice yes, to hello, meet you. Can, nice I, can, I, can I shake you can your shake paw? My hand, yes. Is it a paw or well, a it's hand? It's a paw, really. Paw. I call it a hand. <laughs> I remember you going to the dentist. Oh, yes, I went to the dentist once. And you weren't very one. happy about it, no, were you? No, I wasn't you? very happy about it. I hated it. Corrie and Carry On star Amanda Barry remembers being a children's TV presenter in the 70s. Because it was live, they were always either overrunning or underrunning, so there were mad people waving at you. Mm. I remember one day we were really underrunning. So I hopped on the wall and walked along it. Oh, I got in such trouble. They said, you are teaching children to walk on walls. We're back in Hartley to meet the original female inspectors from Juliet Bravo. So when you come to do any filming, you've got this skirt on and this jacket and the coat was cold. The hat, the first hat we wore wasn't reinforced. It wasn't a helmet. And I had a handbag. No pockets. There wasn't a single pocket in my jacket. I mean, talk about ill-equipped. And there's even an appearance from Gonzo in our great Muppets reunion. Dr. Gutnick works on me. I've had my nose lifted. I've had, you know, everything fixed. Everything's been lifted. <laughs> These programmes and many more are all available now at distinctnostalgia.com. Get in touch via the Contact Us page on the website. Bye for now. we made connection.
Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.